know, I think one of the most impactful things that uh, I've heard and uh, from you, Brad, was it was a few, maybe two years ago on one of these Ash Village Institute calls, um, and you shared your story about uh, your encounter with a farmer in Africa, and uh, when you shared that, it made quite an, quite an impression on me, and I've actually been able to share that nugget of wisdom with, with a few other people I've found. So I just, I just one of the first just kind of start off by asking you if, if you could share a little bit about your story about how you got into uh, into permaculture, into water harvesting, um, and you know, if you, if you could kind of relate, how, you know, if you can kind of retell that a little bit uh, for our audience here, and um, I think it's powerful, and I think I, I, so. I, I kind of sense that I wanted to to ask about uh, talk about our, our story uh, and, and your story in particular, Brad. So if you wouldn't mind, just giving us a quick. Not maybe not quick, but just to share, share, you know, how you got started, what what really propelled you, what influenced you, in the work that you're now doing. Yeah, sure thing. So um, I grew up in the Southwest in Tucson, Arizona, dryland city, and uh, it's a great place. But as I grew up here, I witnessed the water situation steadily getting worse. Uh, we exist, Tucson exists where it does because of the Santa Cruz River that used to flow year-round, but it no longer flows. It's now a dead river because we have over-pumped the groundwater to such an extent that groundwater extraction rates exceed the rates of natural recharge. So um, I've seen springs die out, riparian forests die out, um, rivers and other uh, perennial waters uh, die out. Um, and uh, um, this is a big reason why I was lured to uh, permaculture is um, I was looking for uh, ways of being part of a solution rather than the problem. And as I was looking at things, I felt I was part of the problem being in a, a city that was extracting more than it was giving back and um, was seeing the destruction as a result. And I, being a citizen of that community, was a contributor. So um, I got into permaculture, and uh, after taking that uh, course and starting to get into that, I had the chance to travel to Southern Africa, where my uh, mother's from. So um, there's a family reunion in South Africa, and after that, I took the opportunity to travel to Botswana, Zimbabwe. And um, in Zimbabwe, that is where I met the uh, the water farmer, Mr. Zephaniah Piri Maseko. Um, and he was a subsistence farmer who um, turned a relative wasteland into an oasis. And he taught himself and his family how to do it simply by observing what happened when it rained. He saw where water would gather and infiltrate and generate life. That was good. He tried to mimic that pattern. And he also noticed where water too quickly flowed away, caused erosion and flooding in other areas. That was not working. So he tried to uh, mitigate that by mimicking what he observed that was working uh, and, uh, and try and shift things in a positive way. So I um, I had the chance to spend just one day with him, and it was a phenomenal day because 
I was so um, inspired by the transformation that he and his family had brought to this this small family landholding, and it was such a stark difference from uh, you know, neighboring properties and whatnot uh, that were eroding, whereas his was just full of life. So. Um, I asked him at the end of the day, you know, I was so impressed with what he'd done. I asked how long it took, and he said it had taken him 30 years. And I was a lot younger then, and I thought, 30 years? That's great, because I wasn't even 30 years old at the time. That's crazy. It's such a long time. And, and he slapped me on the shoulder. He said, yeah, but that's life. Life takes time. The key is you just got to start, you know, start to make a positive difference. And so for whatever reason, I just kind of felt like venting or sharing some of my concerns uh, about home and uh, how I'd been witnessing degradation of a lot of the ecological systems that my community depends on. And uh, so um, uh, sharing that, I said, you know, look, I also don't want to be part of the problem. So I'm thinking of leaving. And he then smacked me on the shoulder and he said, you cannot leave. He said, if you leave, if you run from your problems, you'll just be planting problems everywhere you go. So you have to instead go back and set your roots deeper than you ever thought possible. And as you do that, try and figure out solutions to these problems. Because if you figure out solutions, well, you'll have that ability wherever you find yourself. And you can then plant solutions. Um, so uh, um, that's, that just really inspired me. I was um, really uh, needing uh, and ready to hear such a thing. So I then came home uh, determined to try and do likewise, but in a different context, in my more urban context and the U.S. And uh, But I knew solutions were possible because I'd seen the solutions he and his family had developed. And I knew that there was a way to turn around the water situation by giving back more than one takes as Mr. Zephaniah had done. So um, using a lot of the patterns and general strategies he used and then uh, adapting them to the unique context of my urban setting, um, I started to achieve a lot of similar successes. And uh, it's now gotten to the point that the work my brother and I did on our small eighth of an acre urban site, uh, it started to inspire other neighbors, um, it inspired the city, um, and now just and within 10 years, things flipped from the number of the water harvesting strategies being illegal to then becoming legal. And not only that, they are now incentivized by uh, rebate programs and even mandated by um, new city policy. And um, a big reason for that is people being able to see successful examples of doing things in a different way and how successful it was. So that uh, you know, it was really hard to refute um, that living success. And uh, yeah, they inspired more change. And it's that kind of thing where um, I think one can really has a lot of power to make 
a big difference in one's own life by steering the rudder and setting the tone for what you want to see in the world. And if you do it in an enticing enough way, others will follow and evolve and go further. Yeah, I, I, I love that story. And I, and I didn't realize it until later that, that you retell this story, provide some great details and pictures of, of Mr. Uh, Paseco and his farm and a layout in your book in the first volume, Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond. Um, it, it, and it's a... Uh, I think it's I think it's great. I mean, I didn't I didn't realize it was it was in the book later. And so if uh, if others find this inspiring, like I just encourage you to check out that first chapter. Well, check out check out the whole book. Check out both books, but uh, check out that first chapter. There's just a, a lot of great details in that story that I think are so powerful too. As I as I later read it, um, and the thing that, the thing that jumped out to me, Brad, about it was that you know. Uh, you know the, the the impact that your story around this encounter and what you've done with it, uh, the power that that has to inspire people. I thought it was also interesting that in your one day with him, he wound up telling you a story about his encounter and his his journey. Um, and so I, I just uh, feeling like there's there's this uh, power in the story that we we should not. Um, underestimate in that uh, each one of us in the story of our journey, like there's something that we can share and, and spread uh, for sharing that. So, um, but I think one of the things that really uh, I was also wanting to get to in the discussion was, you know, as I, I, I run into people, I mean, I was, I was on a plane next to a guy the other week flying through Phoenix and this guy lives in Tucson, and I'm like, oh, you, should, you know, of course, just t talking about the drought in, in the West and everything, and so I told him about your book and, and techniques and whatnot, and, um, but I think as people, I mean, it's becoming increasingly on people's radar, like, man, we got, we got a problem. Uh, we, we have lots of problems, uh, but, you know, the, the drought and the fires and um, are, I think, are on a lot more people's radars than they've been in the past. There seems to be a lot of focus about how bad it is, but I think it's, uh, you know, really important to be able to point to good reasons for hope uh, in these situations. And that I think a lot of people kind of feel a little bit helpless, like, what can I do about it? You know, but want to do, be able to do something about it, but they're kind of like, you know, I just it's a, it's so much bigger than me. Um, so, but before they can even believe that they might have a, a part to play in it, it feels like they've got to have some some reason to have hope. And in the story with with Mr. Maseko, you know, he's talking about 30 years of developing this this paradise that 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 he's co-created there in Zimbabwe. Um, and it's not always, you know, you don't always have those 30-year examples to kind of walk people through, right? But maybe, maybe there's some facts or some details or some epiphanies that people that we can share with people that will help them realize, wow, wow, you know, just kind of turn things on their heads and just kind of make people realize, you know what? There actually is a lot of hope here. What's going on? So, for example, you know, one of these things I've heard about the 
annual rainfall in the Los Angeles area, and I haven't researched this myself and done the, done the math, but I think the average rainfall in Los Angeles is about 15 inches a year with a lot of variation um, from year to year. But um, maybe you can maybe you can share some of the some of the factoids that I that might inspire people to realize, hey, there's actually more hope. So, like in Los Angeles, I've heard this claim that enough rain falls on the Los Angeles area to satisfy the water requirements of Los Angeles, yet 85% of the water in Los Angeles is imported from somewhere else. So, I mean, I, 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 can't, I can't verify the veracity of that kind of a statement, uh, but I'm guessing in your field, you, you have a better handle on these kind of facts. But maybe you can share some of those things that, that might help people realize that there's actually a lot of hope. Yeah, well, in um, in Los Angeles, um, there is there's not enough rain to meet current annual consumption. There's not enough year in rain to meet uh, the current consumption of water in a year, but um, can certainly meet more than half, uh, much more than half. Um, and uh, the uh, and LA is importing the vast majority of the water it consumes. And this is this is the same situation in many communities throughout Southern California especially, but uh, um, in Central and Northern California too. So um, the, uh, uh, if one were to just utilize the free rain that falls on the community, and instead of draining it away, reinvesting it into one's soils, vegetation, aquifers, creeks, and rivers, um, one could dramatically reduce their importation, costly importation of inferior water from elsewhere. So, um, and we can all do this. So I think it's key to give people hope, but also to give people um, strategies, because hope without action, um, is not taking a responsibility, and um, I think it's important that uh, that we both look for, find hope, but that we contribute to it. We invest in that hope through positive actions that are going to lead the realization of that which gives us hope. So let's talk about just what people can do um, on their own residences or at their schoolyards around their businesses. So um, in, um, in California, particularly Southern California, 30 to 70% of the drinking water people consume is used to irrigate landscapes. So that's just ridiculous that we're taking water that's been purified for drinking water standards and we're putting it right into the dirt for plants. And then when it rains, we're sending all the rain past the plants into the storm drain and out of the system. So um, it's very easy to change one's um, topography of one's yard. So instead of being hill-like that drains water, we can make it more bowl or basin-like that captures and infiltrates water. Um, and then um, we can create these rain gardens and shift from drinking water being the primary water source for our landscapes to rainwater being the primary water source for our landscapes. And in times of no rain, we can direct how gray water, our once used water that goes down our sink, shower, washing machine drains. And instead of sending that to the sewer, we can redirect that to the landscape as long as we're using the right kinds of soaps and detergents that are good for the soil, won't kill the soil or the plants. 
And the cool thing about that is if we use the right soaps for the plants and the soil, they're also healthier for us, so our health improves as does the landscape. So um, I've found, and many, many others, that, that making these simple shifts, um, we as individuals, we as households, we can reduce our drinking water consumption by 30 to 70 percent just with how we change our landscapes. And then we can go even further by reducing the water consumption. This, this might be a, a pushing it a little bit for some, but we can, um, <clears throat> instead of using drinking water in our toilets, which is what's in a flush toilet, and anytime you use the flush toilet, you then <clears throat> instantly turn drinking water into dangerous sewage. And that turns a resource into a waste. It would be better if we turn wastes into resources. So we do that with our simple compost toilet, um, and uh, where we very safely turn human waste into compost that once the composting process is done has no trace of fecal matter or salmonella or anything. It's totally fine to use under one's fruit trees. And at the same time, it creates more of uh, an organic sponge within the soil. So the soil is then better able to more quickly infiltrate the rain when it falls and hold it onto it longer, uh, much longer into the dry spell. Um, and uh, there's many other strategies to reduce one's water consumption even further. But here's the thing that I see with water harvesting, with gray water harvesting, with the composting. It's not it's not just a conservation strategy. You know, conservation strategies are all about reduce, reduce, reduce. But when you um, when you go the path of living systems, where you are trying to enhance a living system that's in balance with uh, the climate and uh, and all of the place where it's located, um, you don't just conserve or limit, you actually leverage more abundance. So um, an example is we can set up our water harvesting landscapes in such a way that not only are they reducing our water consumption, but they also create cooler environments. So we don't have to use air conditioners so much or at all depending on how well we do it. Um, so that reduces more energy consumption. And there's a huge amount of water consumption in the production of energy. When we um, make steam uh, from burning coal or at nuclear plants or whatnot um, to generate electricity. Well, if we don't have to generate so much electricity, we don't consume so much water. But that goes back to the uh, conservation. Let's get back to the regeneration. So um, the primary way you know, we cool uh, our property and all is by growing air conditioners that also produce food and wildlife habitat and beauty, windbreaks, and shelters. And we're doing all this without any imported water. We're just using on-site rainwater. And um, in my residence, all the water I use is rainwater, even though we just get 11 inches of rain a year. And I only have a 400 square foot roof, but yet I'm able to live off of that rainwater because of the way I use it. I cycle it many times. So after 
I, um, after it goes through me, goes into the composting toilet. Uh, after it goes over my dishes or clothes, it goes into the gray water system and back into the landscape. So I get that use of washing clothes or dishes before it then goes to irrigate the plant. So I'm getting more uses without more consumption and resulting in more production of more life and potential. That's beautiful. That, I, I, think, that, I think that's where uh, you were thinking. That, yeah, no, that's not, no, it is beautiful because I think that, uh, I think it's the other aspect of it. It's not just uh, giving people hope that, you know, that, that they can use less, right? But the, the conservation message is important, but it's, it's, uh, it's more than just conservation. It's about abundance or as you, as you put it, you know, a bond dance, like, you know, uh, I think you presented in in the Middle East at a conference uh, at one of the TED, TED, TEDx talks or something like that, and you did your little bun dance uh, up on stage. Mm -hmm. So I uh, just want to pull that one in there. But um, no, I, I, think that's a, I think that's a very important aspect for people to get. It's not just about one strategy, one element. It's about there's so many other possibilities and uh, having the lenses to, to look and see see all of these other functions um, that that an element can can provide and that, that's one of the things that's so appealing to me about uh, permaculture is just giving people lenses to see resources for the blessings that they can be not just how we maybe pigeonhole them in our kind of typical use of things you know so um, no that's that's great I, one of the things that when my wife and I go to India this last year they had completed the school at the orphanage and had a chance to to, to, to teach in the or, or in the school and one of the things I really wanted to share with them was you know a, a couple of the elements around permaculture uh, but just like talking about water and then talking about trees. And, you know, I didn't realize all the amazing things that trees do until I did the, the permaculture course last year. I think, Matt, we were in the same course with Jeff last year online. Yeah. And it was like, holy cow, like, yeah, kids need to, I wish I had learned this when I was a kid, right? Like, I want my kids to know about this. Uh, so, um, you know, but one of the things that I really wanted to convey with them was talking about water was just how rare fresh water actually is. Um, and, and uh, you know, how, how as Americans, you know, they might look at Americans and say, hey, they're doing all this stuff right. But I just wanted this, these kids to hear it from an American that like, you know what, around water, we're kind of stupid, right? Like we spend trillions and trillions of dollars of infrastructure to take pure water and pollute it and, and ship it out to the ocean as fast as possible, right? With all of our, you know, curbs and the storm drains and the whole bit. Um, and I wanted, I just wanted them to be thinking about like, don't just try to mimic what you might see is done in the West per se, uh, uh, but think for yourselves around how you can leverage water that you do have to, to, to create abundance like you're talking about. So I'm excited about going back and taking Matt, your permaculture student books um, and being able to share it with some of the teachers there in the school because uh, 
one of the teachers I was working with uh, was very, very interested in this. So um, I'm excited about I'm excited about you know that aspect of uh, of going back this year. And you know back back on the on the story uh, aspect of this. Um, you know, I, I wanted to kind of see Brad, like as you, as you look um, at ways that you know sharing your story with other people, uh, how that's helped them, um, maybe kind of get having a, a, an epiphany, an aha moment. What would you say? And, and you've given some good strategies. You're like, hey, these are actually some strategies that you can do. What would you, if somebody gets that aha moment, what's what's the way that you best encourage them? to kind of explore what their next step is. Sorry, crack a little. To explore what? What what their next step might be. So, you know, if people kind of, you uh -huh. know, as, as Jeff Lawton kind of said in his interview, that are, you know, a few months ago, as people might kind of get infected, if you will, with the, oh boy, wow, you know, there's a possibility here. How, how, how do you encourage them to explore their next step and uh, and actually take next steps? Mm -hmm. Well, I try and get them to uh, you know look at their life and see if where they have potential interest or potential passion to shift things and make change. And um, stories are a great way to show how they may make change. So I'll share my story. I'll share the story of Mr. Zephaniah Piri Maseko, the African water farmer. Um, or I'll share whole different stories that um, aren't necessarily around water, but other things, maybe around energy, maybe around transportation. Um, in the hopes of giving a diverse enough array of stories uh, of people's successes and shifting things around for the better, that people might resonate with something that really taps into their experience, their lives, um, their context, and might want to then capitalize on that. Um, and I think one of the power of stories is that if they're, you know, stories of one's own life, they can't be ref refuted. You know, that's that's a real life experience. And the great thing about storytelling is it's a way to weave a lot of information into a compressed amount of time. Um, stories weave images. Is um, it's not just words. So uh, it's a great way for us to be able to see uh, many different connections. Um, so uh, I don't have a set answer for someone if they ask, well, what could be my first steps? Um, I don't have a blanket answer because it, it really depends on, well, what's that person's life about? What's their interests? Uh, so I can certainly give a common response for um, how I've shifted things, but that could shift for others. And let's just say one thing on water. So let's say you're in an apartment building um, and maybe you're on the upper story and you don't have any access to um, soil directly in the earth. So uh, you couldn't direct your gray water from your drain to the soil. 
Um, so, well, okay, so one thing you can at least do there is create a bucket and chuck it system. So let's say you're showering and you just bring a five gallon plastic bucket into the shower and when you're waiting for the water to heat up, you put the, uh, the water into the bucket and then when you're showering, you stand over the bucket. So the water hitting your face, body and whatnot, most of it drains into the bucket. And when you're done with the shower, you have this bucket full of gray water. And then you use that to flush the toilet as opposed to using um, virgin drinking water. And the way you do that is you just pour the uh, bucket gray water into the toilet bowl, not, not the toilet tank, but the bowl. And when the water level gets to a certain point, it self-flushes. You don't even have to hit the lever. So that's a way people can shift from flushing their toilet with drinking water to instead shift to flushing their toilet with their once-used shower water. Um, and then another step could be if they have a balcony and they've got some stuff they're planting, maybe they can even carry some of that water out to a planting. So um, it all depends. Um, yeah, it all depends on the context. Gotcha. Well, that, 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 that's awesome because I've been wondering, you know, in our house we've got this concrete foundation with all the plumbing kind of in there and about the only gray water thing I've been able to figure out is the uh, the washing machine, right? Like using the washing machine's pump to kick it out through the attic over to, you know, the side, the side bed where there's a banana tree, right? Um, but you've just kind of added a strategy there like, you put a five-gallon Home Depot bucket in the shower with you, <laughs> you're going to catch a lot of water. And uh, uh, yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, that's awesome. So, uh, yeah, well, yeah, so just to close. Yeah, go ahead. So I was just going to say, too, the um, uh, other thing you can do is you could set up um, a hose over uh, a branch of a tree or whatnot right beside your bananas and um, just set up an outdoor shower right next to your bananas. So that's a, a whole nother way or you know, next to some other fruit trees. So um, shower where the water is, at least in the summer months when it's comfortable to do so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hey, I'm trying to figure out the, uh, trying to figure out that, that screening strategy around the because because the banana tree really wants a lot of wants a lot of water for sure uh, but yeah so i mean so you've got a you've got a couple of books you've got a, a website called uh watershed management group no that's uh, me so my website is harvestingrainwater.com okay harvesting rainwater sorry sorry so, uh, what's the watershed management group? That's Jennifer. That's Jennifer Wadsworth. Okay, sorry, sorry. All right, harvesting rainwater. Cause, okay, because I think I saw you on a. Um, HarvestingRainwater.com. HarvestingRainwater.com. Okay. There's right. some amazing videos on there. I think everyone should go over there, check those videos out. They're not to be missed. You actually. You give a ton away just for free, Brad, and it's really laudable. You've got these books. It's clear that you know you're spending a huge amount of time and resources sharing with people, um, and you're giving away tons of information from your book because you, and it's obvious you care. And uh, what's really interesting is that we had another South African also 
with red hair. He, he um, actually red beard, <laughs> red beard permaculture. Edward Gaba. Um, he, I had him on the um, last week on the podcast. I haven't posted it yet, but now I have two South Africaners that I can talk uh, that we can talk with this week. It's incredible. That's funny. I was thinking of I was thinking of Edward when you, when uh, Brad mentioned that his family was in South Africa. I was like I was like, oh, the red hair makes sense now. <laughs> well, I really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You guys are only two percent of the population. You got to represent, and I have many people that I know that are amazing people that are gingers, and we have to promote that. We have to. We have, we need that diversity in all of our systems. <laughs> yeah. So, Brad, can you share with us what you have in future projects coming up? Because I know we, we you've had these books out, uh, or at least volume one out since 2013. I don't know what the development was between the first volume and the second, whether it was planned to be a two-volume set or not. I find that um, uh, the volume thing can be difficult. I, I do it myself. But, um, yeah, tell us what's on, what's on. Is there a volume three coming out? Are you going to do an online course for people? So what's coming up? Okay. So there's a, currently there's volume one, and I came out with the second edition of that volume in 2013, and uh, so it's basically a new book because I added um, over 100 um, uh, and 20 new images and uh, uh, about 100 new pages and whatnot to the book, um, and uh, revised a lot of what was already in uh, the book, and uh, so now um, that has been uh, translated into Arabic and will soon be translated into Turkish. Wow. Um, and uh, I'm trying to get a team together to get that translated into Spanish. Um, then I have my second volume out, um, the uh, Water Harvesting Earthworks book. Uh, and um, with all the books, any time I come up for a reprinting, I revise them all. So they're continuously being um, evolved and, um, and updated, keeping them vital. Uh, and uh, are, are you doing that yourself? That are you doing the publishing? Your, are you doing the republishing yourself? Yeah, I'm, I, uh, I self-publish and uh, beautiful. That, so that enables me to revise the books every time I reprint, whereas the publisher, um, conventional publisher, would not go to that expense and effort. Um, so uh, I've re retained control so that uh, I have that option. Woohoo! Yeah. Um, and then I'm also uh, uh, co-founded a nonprofit called uh, Desert Harvesters. Um, and uh, the website there is desertharvesters.org. So what we're doing with that is um, we showcase how people can utilize wild perennial food plants that are the best adapted to their local climate and, uh, and soils and uh, can not just survive but thrive on passively freely harvested rainwater alone. Um, we're uh, 
showing folks how to plant these food forests uh, within their neighborhoods, utilizing harvested rainwater and street runoff, to create passively sheltered and cooled green belts, encouraging people, more people to walk, to ride their bike, because it's so much more pleasing to do so. This enhances the wildlife habitat um, and uh, improves air, water, and soil quality. So uh, it's all, it's a very simple, inexpensive way to create um, shading food forests along all our streets um, with, and then to generate this food without the need to pump any groundwater or import any water from elsewhere. It's just using what we already have on site for free. And it's also about fertility harvesting. So how can we use just the natural leaf drop uh, and the cut up prunings from the vegetation to be their own fertilizer along with the manure of the myriad bird life that they attract. Um, Are you so instead of raking up leaves or uh, throwing away prunings, we're all about reinvesting that in these water harvesting basins uh, that are collecting street runoff. So the um, because there's so much more water accumulated in these basins due to the runoff catchment, feed of decomposition is much faster. And so uh, we uh, don't end up with piles of organic matter continually decomposing and sending the nutrients back into the soil and the plants. So it's this wonderful closed nutrient loop that's reducing the, uh, the waste stream going to the dump and converting it into a resource nutrient stream that's being reused to grow more food, more food forests. Um, and we're putting together, we put out a cookbook called Eat Mesquite, which is um, one of the key gateway wild foods of my area, my bioregion. But we're now expanding that to include far more uh, wild foods. Because it was all, mesquite was always meant to be the bait to uh, many other wild foods that people can tap. So now we're going to feature those as well. Are you going to do seed libraries that are local to accompany these so that everyone can uh, help each other scale up? Because that's an issue, I believe. And that's why we, I think we need local um, seed libraries everywhere. Well, what's great is we don't have to do that because our public library system already does it. So there's that web of um, connections of multiple networks. So um, no one entity has to carry the full burden. Wow. Um, but what we are finding we need to do, and it's part of our educational programming, is um, while some of the wild food plants in our area are very easy to save seed from, and then you can, you can replant them and grow them out, um, with the mesquite in particular, that's not a good one to save seed from in the urban environment because there are so many exotic uh, mesquites that have been introduced by the landscape uh, trade okay. that, um, that are very low quality in terms of the, the food value of their pods and uh. the flavor tends to be bad. So we, um, 
we have to go out into more pristine areas of the desert where there are not the exotics, and then we select seed from the trees that produce the best tasting pods, the densest cluster of pods for a real fast harvest, and the harvest that precedes the rains, there's no uh, mold issues, so it's a better health value. And then we make that seed available. Um, it's a much higher value seed, and uh, so that people can plant that out. Beautiful. But we also and share that information because if people want to go collect their own seed, we'll freely give them the information on how to do so in a in a highly effective way. Awesome, Jamie. Do you have any other questions? No, I I think it's awesome. I just I just wanted to you know uh, just kind of finish up by by talking about how you know that trillions of dollars of infrastructure that we that we have all over all over our country that has you know pavement that shunts water out to the storm drain out the river and out to the ocean you know uh, i think a, a beautiful thing about permaculture i think this is what you helped get introduced in tucson and another area this is the idea of a very small change that can turn a problem into a solution in these uh, what you've done with the road cuts on the or the curb cuts mm -hmm. uh, as a way as a way to before that water all runs down to the storm drain to, 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 to divert it into these infiltration basins along the road along the streets uh, for people to grow out uh, you know food and abundance I think I think it's just a beautiful example of uh, you know, that judo move of kind of turning, a, of looking at the problem and finding a very small change that can turn the problem into a solution. So I think that hopefully that uh, inspiration for folks as they uh, connect with the passion that's in, in their own lives and the story that you know, hopefully we'll, we'll be looking at our stories of our lives and using some of the inspiration you provided us today, Brad, to think about, okay, what, what is it that I'm passionate about? What What's the thing I'm called to make a difference in right here and now? So thank you so much for, for your time and your all the work you've been doing and uh, how you're, you're, you're getting it out there. Yeah, you bet. And uh, just to go full circle, uh, Mr. Peary, the um, subsistence water farmer, I mean, his challenge was just that, to turn the problem into the solution. Um, even if you don't know how, if you dive in, you can likely figure it out. And same thing, if you see anything that could be perceived as a waste, that's a problem that can be shifted to a solution. Because in a natural system, there's no such thing as waste. All wastes are jumped on and utilized as resources. So um, that's another challenge for us uh, along yeah. that same path of problem to solutions. There's no such thing as waste. There's just stuff in the wrong place, I think the song goes. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Yeah, you bet. Well, thank you guys. Thanks for getting the word out there. All right. Well, we'll we'll post this in the next week, and I really appreciate appreciate this whole thing coming together so well. And figuring out the time zones was a little bit difficult for me, but I'm I'm glad we did it. <laughs> me too. All right, guys. All right. Have a great day.